You're listening to an Anazal Ministries podcast. All right. Have you ever tried to find what is at the back of your wardrobe? Have you heard people talking about these lions, witches, and wardrobes and wondering what they're talking about? Find out today on Systematic Geekology. Today, we are going to be going over the timeless classic of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. We are the priest to the geeks. I am Joe. I am one of the hosts here. I am a broadcaster, uh, marketer, and uh, currently I have been going through the... um, getting caught up on all of the Star Wars stuff that is around and everything that's going on because um, there's a lot of awesome things going on in the Star Wars universe. Fantastic. And I'm Dan, I'm Dan Stoyer, a.k.a. Superfan Dan. Um, I am a home health physical therapist assistant by day and a podcaster by night as I host uh, Finish Last, where we strive to find ways to learn how to live like Jesus in the modern world. And for me, um, as far as something geeky, um, they just released the uh, Moon Knight trailer and I am stoked for it. And I'm coming from a place where I have never read a Moon Knight comic, don't really know about his character. So I'm just excited about learning about a new character that isn't so well known, it seems, in the Marvel Universe, but I'm one that's really excited to learn about as we watch the show. Yeah. So, um, cracking into all of this, uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is one of those books. I'm actually, uh, no, the more that I think about it, the older that I get, I'm fascinated that I can think back to like the fifth grade and they allowed us to read this in a public school set- a setting and all of that and you know with with no issues i mean we're also talking about the heart of the 90s it was a much different (laughs) world back then um so that was probably the first time that i was ever exposed to this book though i i didn't actually read it and it like through through adult eyes until um about two years ago I was laid up with a hernia and I was going through and reading. I read through all of the the Narnia series and some of Lewis's other works and some other things. And I, I, as soon as I now, mind you, I am a, I'm a fan of reading things in chronological order. I think that (laughs) it's ridiculous when things are outside of chronological order, but that's just me. So I started at the first in the series rather than starting at publication order and things like that. So I had yeah. added benefit of like seeing this in, in its context and all of that kind of stuff. Where were you uh, first exposed to Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe? Oh, my goodness. I was – well, I grew up in a Baptist school environment. So, of course, this book as well as The Lord of the Rings was popularized at least in – my school. I mean, my eighth grade teacher in study hall would read us The Hobbit and tell us all the Christian allegories in that book. But I didn't really get into the books that much until maybe I was 15, 16. 
around there because that's when the first movie was uh, coming out, the one that's on Disney Plus now, um, the, mo- the most recent Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe movie. And my sister had all seven books in uh, one book. So the book is like this thick. <laughs> like It's really, really thick. And I probably read all seven books in the span of about three weeks. I was just captivated by his writing, just very creative with Aslan and all the other characters. It just engulfed me. And every once in a while, I like to pick up the books and read them again. And I even got one on me right now. But this was my wife's copy of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So very old school (laughs) by the way it looks. But it's still, I still can't believe this book was written in 1950. It just boggles my mind how something that far away or that long ago still has an impact in our society to anyone that reads it. Right. Right. It's yeah. It's interesting to me with really all of the Narnia books, but specifically the one, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, how it's written in a way that doesn't speak down to anybody. Like you're not, it's, it's not dumb. You don't feel like it's dumbed down. No, but especially from a creative standpoint, but at the same token, it's written in a way that it's, it's written so that kids can read it. You know what I mean? It's not overly complex and weedy and all of those kinds of things. Um, and, And that's something that, that's a that's a very fine line that I, I can't think of many other authors that they've been able to really strike that that very very precise chord. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you, Joe. I mean, it could be you're seven, you're ten, or you're seventy, and it'll have the same effect on you if you're open to the reading and all that. And I feel like cartoons have the same effect. Like when you think in cartoon, you think it's for a kid. But at the same time, if it's well-written, it can really be for adults as well. So I just love that about just this book. It's just in general a very good read and very easy read. Yeah. Um, it's it's funny because I when I first read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I mean, I say that, like I said, in, in like fifth grade, I read it and it was, it was fine. But, and if fascinatingly enough, I actually have distinctive memories of it coming up in some kind of context somewhere along the way that it was an an allegory. And, you know, that was the main kind of idea of what, why it was that we were reading it as an example of an allegory, but a step further, they covered what it was an allegory of yeah, and all of that. And, And so just again, and maybe this is the cynical, 33 year old that you know is is looking at this now that to to see a public school system doing that is fascinating to me especially one out out in the middle of the sticks like the one that i grew up in um so we've circled the drain here about how we first got exposed to these things and all of that Dan, why don't you go ahead and kick us off on a plot summary? You know, for those that haven't, you know, it, it's hard to imagine. There, There's a small number of books and authors 
that especially for Christians that have been a part of the Christian community, you know, their lifers and all of that kind of stuff. It's hard to imagine a world where they haven't heard of these things, but everybody's introduction or every introduction is somebody's first introduction. So let's go ahead and break down what the lion, the witch, the lion, the witch in the wardrobe is all about. I mean, I totally get that. I mean, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan, but I didn't start reading the books until two years ago. So I totally get it. So there might be some of you out there that haven't read it. So I'll give you the long story short of the plot summary here as concise as I can be. So it follows the story of four kids, um, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And they get sent to this professor's house because it's during World War II. And they lived in London, London bombings, get sent out to the professor's house. So they're in a place that they're not used to. And they're going about this house. It's really, really big house. And the youngest one happens to come upon this wardrobe. And she goes in there. And all of a sudden, she starts feeling branches and trees. And then she actually goes into the land that's Narnia. And it's eternal winter there. She meets a friend named Mr. Tumnus. And then she actually ends up going back to the real world. And the time of the world, has, it's another topic of itself, but basically she's gone for only like two seconds in the real world and in Narnian time, it's like five hours. But anyways, she goes back and no one believes her. And then when she goes back a second time, Edmund follows her thinking that she's just playing and turns into a joke. And he goes back, meets the antagonist of the story, the evil witch or the white witch, the winter witch, who calls herself the queen of Narnia. He gets enticed by her with something called Turkish delight, which we'll touch on in a little bit again, because that's one of my favorite parts of the story. And he goes back. He denies that he ever went there, which is so interesting. I love the story of Edmund throughout this. So what ends up happening is all four go back in there and they're like, wow, this place is real. And then they go to the beat and then they end up following this house into the beavers home. And they talk about this guy named Aslan, who was there to help redeem the nation and to help save everyone from the white witch. Edmund, in the meantime, because of that Turkish delight and the allegory for that is temptation, which we'll touch on later, of course, um, entices him to go back to the white witch to almost betray or to technically betray his other brothers and sisters so that he can get more of that Turkish delight, even though he knew that she was evil. What ends up happening is she gets really mad at him. He uh, becomes her slave under bondage, pretty much. The other three kids realize that he's, that Edmund's betrayed them. They go off making sure that they don't catch them. And then Aslan comes into the story, this Big, huge, majestic lion with this deep. I always imagined him before I saw the movies with a Morgan Freeman voice. <laughs> but this very deep, rich, caring voice. And they're preparing for war against the White Witch because during the story, the magic of the of the witch is getting destroyed, basically. Spring is coming. The winter is leaving. And... The witch goes, hold on a minute. I don't want this to happen. So she ends up meeting Aslan in person in the camp saying, I have Edmund and he is personally my property and I can do whatever I want to him. And Aslan goes, let's have a meeting. So they have a meeting. And at the end of the meeting, um, the white witch gives Edmund back 
to the family and everyone's celebrating and the witch goes you're gonna keep your promise right and then aslan of course roars the crowd cheers and then they have a party or whatever sadly what happens next is aslan then walks by himself and the girls lucy and uh susan i believe go after him and he basically gives himself up and takes Edmund's place and the witch basically kills Aslan on what's known as the stone table. And the witch thinks she's won. And the next day they're going to prepare for battle against Peter and Edmund and the forces of Narnia against the forces of the white witch. Uh, long story short, the two sisters stay where Aslan has died and can't believe what's happening. And lo and behold, Aslan comes back from the dead, um, kind of breaking the stone table in half, which is another <laughs> allegory right there. That's why we kind of love this book. And he takes them off to the war and basically redeems all the characters, kills the white witch. And uh, then they become kings and queens of Narnia, the four children do. And then at the end of the book, they stumble upon they stumble upon where they entered the world of Narnia, and then they go through the wardrobe, and then they're back to modern times. And that's basically the first book. Does that sound right, Joe? Did I miss anything there? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned the, the winter part, because that's something that you don't normally hear about when you are going through all of this that you know usually focuses on what Aslan does at the end and all of that. But yeah, I mean... Every single character, and this is part of why I appreciate The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe more in its chronological context, because you this this world is lived in. You know what I mean? And that's something that I, I have to give to Lewis that that he created a world that really does seem lived in past just you know, I'm going to hit you over the head as hard as I can with uh, with with an allegory of, you know, yes, the most important thing that ever happened to to humanity. But it, it's it's a compelling story beyond beyond just that. And all of the characters have weight to them. You know what I mean? That's something that, you know, we're not necessarily going to touch on the movies per se, because that's going to, you're going to find those living over on Patreon, the reviews of those. But at the same token, you have you, even, even, it's something that universally was, was really done well in both mediums that, um, that, that you, have of these stories that these characters they have that they are three and four dimensional you know what i mean you you actually care about the things that happen to these characters and with the lion the witch in the wardrobe i have to give it to you know it to me and and this is this is me again looking at this from a point of view of of 2022, but also from the point of view of somebody that I, I'm have spent way more time with with secular media than with Christian media. So yeah. to me, it's super gutsy 
of a writer to take this character, even, you know, yes, you can make the argument, okay, of course, Aslan was always going to die, all of that kind of stuff. But to take this major character, you remember or you realize that that this this book is the first introduction that anybody's ever had to this world in time. I'm saying in in the time that it was that it was released, you have this first and foremost. And so you have you have these characters that that, you know, we're going to go ahead and kill this guy off and bring him back, even though. By all other standards and measurement, why would why would you do that? All of those kinds of things, short of it being an allegory sort of thing. Yeah. But done, it's done well, you know. Oh, it's done really well. I'm rereading the book um, recently. I was surprised. I don't remember this at all, but after reading it, they go to Narnia on page five, yeah. and I went, "Whoa, that's quick!" And just and just like you said, it was to introduce this idea of another world. That I mean, I don't think of any other stories before this that were that is that is a true allegory of Christianity that's kind of following the story of Jesus and the Bible that's not the Bible. So I mean that is that and it's for kids too, mo- mostly. But I like I said, I still enjoy reading it now and again, and it is just a pleasant, pleasant surprise anytime I pick it up and read it. Right, and that's. <sighs> not to this extreme you know there are there are the aspects of the hero's journey that you could point to in other um in other stories there are if you yeah. squint and cock your head a little bit you can find um uh, you know similarities to Christ's story in different books and things like that um but as far as as far as a straight as much of a beat for beat <laughs> comparison as you can get without just recreating the source material you know what i mean like without just having like the bible you know what i mean that kind of thing this this is you know the thing that comes to mind and certainly it speaks to the power of a 72 year old book that you're still thinking of this in such a light that it's the first thing that comes to your mind. It's yeah. at the end yeah. of the day, like there, this isn't, this isn't even a horse, a horse race. Like this isn't even, there is no competition when you talk about things that, that illustrate. And I really think that that's true for, you know, to, to um, give a, give a, a bit of a sneak peek into the rest of this. There's there are true statements to this throughout the entirety of the Narnia series, and not and so, some of them are you know some of them you have to try a little bit harder than others to find where they you know what part of the Bible they are illustrating sort mm-hmm. of thing like this is very much the most right strict adaptation out of the group that you see. Um, but but to to be able to establish it here and then move on throughout the series and still be able to keep that same kind of of you know uh feeling about it and that same that same kind of presentation of it all um i think just really speaks to how compelling a writer cs lewis really is 
Oh, I mean, it's he's fantastic. I mean, C.S. Lewis just in general, I mean, writing the screw tape letters and mere Christianity. I mean, he already had a lot of stuff going for him. And just to have this added on to just all the books he wrote, I mean, what a gift that he gave. You can tell us it's totally something from God because it's still something that will be around for as long as life exists, I think. And I think what really sets this book apart for me or just the series in general is that a lot of things that happen in it are relatable. I mean, one of my favorite parts, and I'll just go go right to my favorite part now. Uh, One of my favorite parts is just the story of Edmund in general, because when you first read this book, Edmund is the character you hate. Edmund is the character where it's like, man, what an idiot. How could he betray his own brothers and sisters for a piece for donut? That's, That's basically what he was doing. But the more you read the book and the more you think of your own life, I can't think of help that Edmund is us. Um, Edmund is basically Romans 7 in a nutshell, because even he goes through Edmund's thought process about how he gets the Turkish delight. And the Turkish delight is an allegory for temptation and sin, because he knows it's a bad thing to side with the witch, yet he wants that Turkish delight. He doesn't care how he gets it. He just wants more of it. And I just can't help think of Romans 7 where it says, the good thing I want to do, I don't do. And the bad thing I don't want to do, I end up doing. And it's just amazing to see how far Edmund falls just because of that temptation that he wants so badly. And to just see his story come full circle and end up to the point of... The witch wants to kill him, basically, and get rid of him. And Aslan takes his place on the stone table, or a.k.a. the cross, that should have been Edmund's, and to take his place and get sacrificed in that place. That part gets me every time. And what boggles me is that even though he redeems Edmund, Edmund still has to take steps to prove that he's changed. And it's a really quick blurb in the book but basically Aslan comes back and redeems everybody. But then he goes, uh, Edmund's Edmund basically risks his life to prevent a leopard from turning into a statue and is all bloodied and beaten up. And I think that's the point that people realize that Edmund took this seriously and that he wasn't living for himself anymore, but for others. And that to me is such a redemption story and that he took the focus off of himself and realized, Hey, my life is important, but living for others is more important because that's what Jesus or Aslan in this case would, would do for us. So that part, that story gets me every time I read this. Right. For me, the most impactful part, you know, it, this, this to me is, is impactful for different reasons than the other ones. The other ones are more, more impactful from the standpoint of, um, now you're telling a compelling story. Like now, now the 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 characters and and I'm I'm a sucker for for a good story and yeah. all of that kind of stuff in a in a, a built out world and all of those kinds of things. So so to me, but but with this one, the weightiness is so uh, is so evident on certain uh, on, on very specific things, and you know. I think as as present day Christians, it's so easy to look at 
examples even from the Bible, right? Where, you know, Israel, you know, is is following and you just saw all of these miraculous things and all of that kind of stuff. And you're still trying to make golden idols. That story still still boggles me. Right, right. Until you realize that we are indwelt with God and we still make golden idols, they look different. We're not smelting gold, but we have each one of us has our temptation point. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I remember being a kid when when reading this, like this is he sold out. He, he sold everybody out for a dessert. Yeah. Like it just it didn't click because I'm a kid. A, I'm a kid. Right. B, I hadn't actually heard the gospel and all of that kind of stuff. So so to me, that that weightiness of and. In conjunction with Aslan, right? That's supposed to be the, the he's supposed to be the main character in a lot of respects for a reason. And the fact that we sit, it's the same deal, you know. And, and again, the little little Easter eggs. Check out check out the movie review, but but they did this in the movie too, where you hung there, you sat in this that you were going to. See, at this point, you realized you were going to see this character die and do so for him. And and yeah. the, the juxtaposition there is so well done that you feel like, like you do not like this character until you're you realize and it's not done in this glorified sort of way it's literally done in a the moment has come he's got to step up and so he steps up you know what i mean there's the same it's a similar thought process for me for peter that he is called to um he is called to step up and he steps up but one of the things that I appreciate about him so much outside of just I, I feel I feel like Edmund and Aslan a little bit are I, I don't mean this in a negative way, but like the 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 obvious points, you know what right. I mean, uh, of the story. But you have somebody like Peter. I look at him and I see a lot of reflections of Peter from the Bible. And I see a lot of reflections. It helps that I see a lot of reflections in my own life, in my own personality to Peter's initial personality in the Bible, that he wasn't somebody who got it, who just, he was not, um, he did not have that, that instantaneous light bulb moment. It was a progression of what you see this character to become. And it was the same deal with Peter. Yes, he was always the leader type, but at the same token, you saw him mature into being what a leader should be and, mm-hmm. mature, and go through a character arc, even though he starts off kind of further along than some of the other characters, you still see that he's somebody who has to go through the paces to learn how to be what he's being called to be. That's a good point because it's really easy to lose Peter in this story is that because Edmund, he basically has his own sub story in the main story 
Right. And if I could just add on to that, my just other favorite part is just Lucy in general, because um, I just love that one scripture with all the kids and Jesus and like truly you won't be able to enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're like a child or you think like a child. And how Lucy describes Narnia would be like a kid playing make-believe or a kid making this imaginary town. And sometimes when you describe heaven to people, it sounds like a fairy tale. Like, yeah, if you believe in Jesus, then you'll go to heaven, live for eternal life and all that good stuff. And like, there's no way that's real. So just having that mindset, I love the fact that Lucy goes there first. And said, and said, hey, you're going to believe this anyway, no, no matter what would have happened. But her faith throughout the whole process is just, it's something that we need to hold on to, especially in these times on earth as we strive towards our Narnia or heaven in this case that Jesus has for us at the end of our journey. So I want to use that as a perfect caveat to jump over to the philosophical aspects of this. And you know, a lot of times, you know, you don't know exactly where we're going to go with this, but like, it's time to talk about the, talk about the lion in the room, right? Like we've made some inferences to it, but now let's talk about it. I, and I'm so glad that we're using the character of Lucy as the transition point. Oh yeah. Because when I read this, like I said, I, I just, I, I was still in, in, in a lot of respects, I'm, I'm still wet behind the ears when it comes to the whole Christianity thing, but I was fresh. Like this, this was, I just moved back and I, so we're talking six months, maybe a little bit longer from, from, from point A to point B when I'm reading this book. And I'll, I'll tell you what, if, if ever there was a definition of at that point in my life of ignorance on fire, that was that was me. Like I just I, I I didn't know much, but like I I knew that I had very very radically from a physical point of view and a spiritual point of view been saved from the situation that I was in. So so to me, I'm seeing this. I I kind of had an opportunity. Yes, world worn eyes. Yes, I'm a little cynical. Yes, you know, go back and listen to the Cthulhu episode if you really want to see how how cynical I can be and all of that kind of stuff. Sure, but but talking about this, this brings me back to that point where man, it was like it was like looking at this through through fresh eyes because it was it was as close to a depiction of heaven that we get outside of the source material. And, and I keep saying the source material, yeah. I mean the Bible. Like, yes, if you want to understand the, 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 the few things that we can come to understand about heaven, look to the Bible. If you want to hear all of those, uh, all of what, hey, I may not have ever heard the, the, the gospel story. I don't know. I, I understand that mm-hmm. this is a Christian geek show, but some of you guys might not be Christians listening, listening to that. And if so, you know, welcome, but, but understand that there, that there is source material to all of, uh, to all of this and you can find it in the new Testament of the Bible. And so I'm seeing this and I'm like, man, like I'm, it's, it's coming, it's coming to life to me in a way 
that even even outside of the realms of what the Bible says, I know, I know, I know that I'm I'm flirting in territory that some Christians might not be the biggest fan of talking about things outside of the Bible and all of those kinds of things. Yes, I understand it's a make-believe story. Yes, I understand all of those things. I'm not trying to compare C.S. Lewis with the author of any depiction of heaven. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I am trying to do is say that this is a human being that took this concept of paradise, something that I fundamentally believe humans inherently desire after. I think even Christians, non-Christians, I think, I think people in general are born with an inherent desire for, to, to experience perfect, to experience perfection. And, and so with all of that, and then realizing on top of that, that like, I have, I, I have been entered into the group that gets to, that, that gets to experience this. And then seeing this depiction of it, just, it, it holds this book in particular for those, re- for those reasons out, outside of the, its context. Like if you pluck this out of the context of the Narnia series, this is one of the few books in the series that still holds so much gravitas for me because of the place that I was when I first read it, when I when I first experienced these things and and understanding what what radical grace actually looks like. You know what I mean? Like it living living my life yeah. before I did like away from Christ and then coming to know Christ and understanding that, yeah, you know what? That character, that sniveling little punk that you don't want to see get saved. That that's me. I was the one that got saved. I was the sniveling little punk that got got (laughs) saved by something much greater than myself. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, now the line of the witch in the wardrobe, it's, of course, not meant to replace the Bible, but it's such a it's such a good tool to use with the Bible. It's like, huh, like I wonder what this means in the book. And then you look at the Bible, oh, that makes sense. Or just seeing the grace Aslan bestowed onto everyone in the story and like, oh, that same grace is the same grace that Jesus gives me. And that to me is just so powerful in that context. And uh, again, one of my other favorite parts of this book really quick is just um, Aslan dies on something called the stone table. And when he gets resurrected, the stone table gets cut in half. And when Jesus died, the Holy of Holies, which was in the Bible, the sacred place of where you could, that's the only place you could experience God. That was also broken, symbolizing that we can have that connection to God. Anyone can, any place, anytime, anywhere, just like in, just like in Narnia, Aslan was that connection for all the people in that world as well. So, yeah, I mean, I could talk about this book in only three hours, but I know we're, lim- we're limited. But, wow, just guess what, what, the, what you were saying is that we do not deserve this grace. But the point is, is that we don't deserve it, but we have a God who loves us enough that he gives it to us as long as we accept it. And that to me is just one of the main points of just this book in general. And, and there it is. Right. And, and for somebody like me, like I, 
when I when I first got saved, I so got I so went down the apologetics rabbit hole. I've you know I've said this before. I'll say it again. Reader's Digest version. The Bible makes a whole lot of a whole lot of claims, and if you can start verifying the major ones, then a whole lot of the other ones that aren't necessarily verifiable through an apologetic standpoint become a whole lot easier to uh, digest. And so I I went down that that rabbit hole, but I got to this point of. I still needed to accept that this mountain of evidence was true. I can ha- you can look at the mountain of evidence all you want to. Yeah. If you reject it, then there you go. Then then you still don't believe it. And but you get to the point, and I think I think at this point I, I forget, but I think I'm quoting Lee Strobel when I say this <laughs> that I got to the point where it took more faith not to believe than it did to believe. And the fact that you bring up that point of, of as long as we accept it, that is key, that is vital. You know what I mean? Because otherwise, if you just if if you just approach it like, you know, you you say the prayer and and you get your fire insurance, then you know, there's there's no heart behind that. There's no yeah. there's no depth behind that. And I am of the camp and I, this is conjecture. I don't necessarily have anything to, to um, back this up from a quantitative standpoint, but um, I, I really fundamentally believe that at least the line, the witch in the wardrobe was a, a inspired by God, like a, a gift from God, from God through, through Lewis, because otherwise if you have something like this that can elicit these types of emotions out of people, that can elicit this kind of – because I think sometimes as Christians, even for somebody like me, right, I haven't been doing this the whole the, the whole the whole of my life. So I, I, I can – I have a newfound um, appreciation for how easy it is for somebody like you or for any of the other hosts that are lifers that – uh, you know, for 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 the Bible to become stale in certain regards, that you can just kind of look over certain things, that you just kind of breeze over certain things. So I don't think that there's anything wrong with stating that God is a God that would give us something that we can look to. That's a reminder. Yes, reminding you towards him, reminding you towards the Bible. Yeah. Again, yeah. a million asterisks, and I'm not going <laughs> to stop every single time to address every single one of them. But you know, if, if we can, if, if we can be honest, I think that this is a, a prime example of God using the broken toys in the toy box to create something incredibly impactful for generations upon generations upon generations. So Wells. That was well said, Joe. I don't know what to follow with that other than I just want to leave all our listeners with just a question. And I know we've talked a little about Edmund in this episode because I know it's something that I've related to. Um, But I just want you guys to experience the grace of God. And I want you to be okay with accepting that and asking yourself, have I accepted that grace in reality, or am I still relying on my own knowledge? Am I still relying on my own goodness? Because friends, no matter how good we can get, we can't be as good as God wants us to be without 
Jesus intervening in our lives and giving us that grace that he sheds upon us. So that's all I want to leave with you guys is just accept that grace. You will not regret it. Yeah, that when when looking at something like this, you know, it can it can be easy to to miss some of the finer points sometimes, especially if you're somebody that um, has heard, um, I'll call it a manipulated version of the gospel. You know, if you've heard something that isn't necessarily the gospel, but it's it's all that you've heard of and you look at something like this and and you see the the pure parts of it right yes it's out of man yes all of that blah 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 but there's something pure and wholesome about the depiction of sacrifice that happens here friends that is exactly what happened at the cross but it, it doesn't stop there. That's mm-hmm. the thing. The resurrection happened. Yes, that's part of that, that. That's part of the continuation. But what also happens beyond that point is this is relationship. This is every day. This is experiential. And and what what the one thing that I that I want to leave you guys with to draw out of is you look at again. You look at somebody like Edmund. You look at somebody like Peter. You look at somebody like Susan, you look at somebody like Lucy, each different personality types, each different points in their walk, each different points in their belief, especially as the story continues and we get to see some of these characters grow up and all of those kinds of things. We real it, it's it, it, it hone in on the fact that each one of them had a unique relationship to Aslan. Each one of us has a unique relationship to God, and that's okay. Wherever you're at, whatever point you're at, if you're the, 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 the wandering saint that's returning, if you are the person who has the questions, all of those kinds of things, wherever you're at, that's okay. Embrace that and embrace God in that. Because let me tell you something from somebody who used to think, I really used to think that prayers were only for the holy, that that common sinners... That we're not we're not good enough to have our to have our prayers heard. Wherever you're at in all of that, as long as you're open to whatever it looks like, because let me tell you something: radical grace is called radical for a reason. Radical salvation is called radical for a reason. Wherever you're at, as long as you are open to it, I promise you that God is a God that will meet you where you're at and help you get to where you need to go. Yeah, for sure. And before we wrap up, I know Josh and I um, brought this up on an earlier episode. I think the Spider-Man No Way Home one, but uh, I just say, if you want to reach out to someone just to talk about all this stuff, if, if something is stirring in your soul right now, don't be afraid to reach out to Joe, to me, to Josh, to TJ, to Pastor Will, I don't care who it is. We are more than happy to talk with you and encourage you and try to figure out how we can help you and pray with you if you want it. Again, no, not forcing, but we are here. We want to be that resource for you guys. Yeah. And uh, with that, do you want to go into wrap up here? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, just to, just to, uh, I want to 
add add to that real quick. Oh, please do. You, um, you, you know, this is not like we said at the beginning. This isn't a, a, a bait and switch where now you know we're going to chase after you and all of that kind of stuff. But understand that you know when you reach out to the SG main profile on Facebook, um, you're going to get one of us. Likely either Josh, or Josh or I, we're the we're the main two that answer messages on on that particular platform. Um, but any one of us you can find in in the group on the page, things like that. You can see us posting around different things like that. Um, wh- whether it's prayer, if it's questions, whatever the case may be, it's it's a safe environment. That's the one thing that I want to. I, I know it can become a little intimidating to step to people that get behind the microphone. You may think that you're going to get preached at. You may think that you're going to get railed at and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, each one of us has our story. And, and I can say this from having a bit of the inside track with working with these men and these women, this the, as uh, for as much as I have over the last several months, that, that this is, this is a safe place for you to come to any one of us yeah. and get, prayer and get somebody who is willing to listen and willing to engage. So with that, um, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, All right. Dan, what, what have you, what have you been geeking out on? What kind of recommendations do you have right now? Uh, I'm just like, I'm just like you, Joe. I am a sucker for a good story. Um, especially uh, one that goes over a long period of time. And there's a podcast out there um, that my pastor led me to that is just about a story about what happens when a church takes its eyes off of God and focuses on a specific person and how that can just tear apart a church over time. And that would be the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Um, it's just a fantastic documentary about how it happened, how it how it gained 5000 people in the span of like a year and how overnight it literally just the church fell apart. And the podcast goes into the question of why or what happened to create this rip or this falling apart of a church that seemed so strong. And the basic story is that Jesus was taken out of the equation. And eventually the church without that foundation fell apart. But the podcast goes into all the stories of the people that went through that experience. So any podcast platform has it. It's it's quite a story and quite a journey. Yeah, it's it's weighty. You know, if there there are absolutely parts where, you know, for those of you that are parents out there, um, maybe just be just be aware you know what i mean it is put out by christianity today so it's not it's not like super profane or anything like that but um there are some definitely adult themes but that's probably what's what's fascinating about that about that podcast is a the content itself but b everybody's reaction to the the content itself and all of the various points of view, because it's not without going into all, you know, a a whole second episode on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. It's, it's, that's a, that's a story 
that is applicable to so many different churches. They just, ha- you just have Sadly, to be talking yeah. about one that has like 5,000 people. Like, but, but the whole idea that marketing over Jesus, um, you know, what do you, you know, numbers over Jesus, the person behind the pulpit and instead of Jesus, like these are things that, that need to be contended with. And I think, I think the rise and fall of Mars Hill is is as good a starting point as anybody has made so far to get the ball rolling on that conversation. I just really hope coming out of that that a we don't just make it about Mars Hill mm-hmm, and right. b that we're not afraid to continue on the conversation because that is a conversation that very very seriously needs to be had and i think that a lot of aspects of that that have been happening for a very long time in this country have come to a head over the last couple of years and so yeah that is that is a it's definitely compelling if for nothing if for nothing else even if you don't agree with all of the stuff contained in there it's certainly a compelling one it is yeah how about you joe um, so I have been going back and reading some of um, old, some of the old Daredevil runs, um, and it, you talk about uh, just a depth of of character that is just out of sight. Like there's there are so many countless um, stories out there that really exercise, especially if you're the type that likes to explore the philosophical and religious um, implications of these different things. I would definitely suggest going in and diving into some old daredevil. People can find me. Um, I have a podcast, like I said, in the intro called finish last. It's on pretty much any podcast platform. You can reach out to me personally at facebook.com slash finish last podcast. My Twitter at finish last pod. Um, Instagram, Finish Last Podcast, or through email, uh, Finish Last Podcast at gmail.com. And how about you, Joe? Where can people find you? Uh, people can find me on, uh, I am a co host of another show called uh, Buddy Walk with Jesus, as well as uh, one of the panel hosts for Kingdom on the Road. So you can find me on Facebook and all of the podcast platforms uh, at at either of those two titles. Um, You can also find the show, like we said, on Facebook, uh, Systematic Ecology. You can find us on Twitter at Systematic Geek. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash systematic geekology where there's all sorts of goodies over there like we said we're doing uh movie reviews for for the movies that have come out um as well as a DD campaign and some other things you can also find the show and some articles and some various things at systematicgeekology.org um and, and lastly, we want you guys to remember that we are all a chosen people, a geekdom of priests. This was an Anazal Ministries podcast. If you enjoyed this show and would like to learn more about our network, be sure to check out the Anazal Ministries podcast network.